Well, thank you for your warm welcome and thanks for uh, the invitation to come and preach uh, from God's Word today. Let's, uh, let's turn to our passage then uh, in Galatians in chapter 3. Galatians in chapter 3, and the passage before us is the first 14 verses today. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by, Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Well, we look for the Lord's help as we consider uh, the truth of this wonderful passage today. So, uh, as a reminder, well, a reminder to you as you've been going through Galatians, of course, this comes in the context of this letter written to these churches consisting of these saints in the region of Galatia, uh, there in uh, the Mediterranean, under the power of the Romans at the time, an area which Paul had gone and preached and uh, planted a number of churches during, during that period. And of course what caused him to write this letter to these churches was that the very message that he brought to them, the gospel, was under attack. False teachers were going, presumably from church to church, preaching a false gospel, false news, good news. And Paul knows that although these churches are full of 
genuine believers and that's important and we'll come on to that later these are genuine Christians here he knows that they are at risk from imbibing and falling victim to this false teaching in fact it's clear from from chapter 1 from from verse 6 right from the outset that this is already beginning to take place they're beginning to turn to a different gospel and so Paul wants to stop this rot from spreading he wants to stop this falsehood from taking hold so he writes this letter one of his first to these churches and what was the false teaching what was this which Paul thought was so important to spend this whole letter addressing essentially that the message that Paul was bringing the gospel as it was first heard was good but it, but it wasn't good enough it correctly taught, the gospel taught that Christ was the Messiah, that Gentiles need to, all people need to believe on him and trust in him. It taught the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection, all these things were good and true, but that wasn't enough to be truly justified. And that's the issue that's at stake. We'll come on to that later, but truly justified in the presence of God to truly enter into God's blessing of salvation they also needed to keep the law of God they added to the gospel that's what this false teaching was doing it was faith plus works now perhaps it's important to remind ourselves quickly what we mean by the law here Um, sometimes it's referred to the scriptures as a whole um, particularly in the Psalms and the Proverbs, thinking about those who, who meditate upon the law, day and night, Psalm 1. Sometimes it's referred uh, to, to the Torah, the first five books of the books of Moses in the Bible. Um, but here, it's a bit more specific than that. Um, um, and most often, when we think of the law in this context, it's referring to that total compilation of commands and decrees that God gave to the nation of Israel through Moses, often referred to as the Mosaic Law. That law given to Moses, or given to the children of Israel through Moses, that created there was this covenant that formed between the, the nation of Israel and God through this law. And so the teaching that these people were bringing, this false gospel, was that faith was important, but it wasn't enough. It needed to be added to. These people, these Gentiles, these non-Jews needed to come under the law, under Judaism almost, as it were, to be truly Christians, to be truly justified before God. And Paul was so so exercised about this falsehood and about its danger that before you take two breaths into the letter, he launches straight into the shock that these Christians are falling so quickly for this corrupted gospel. As we've mentioned already in verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And he clarifies, not that there is another one, of course, that there is no other good, true good news. This is the one truth, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And Paul has spent the majority of the first two chapters then First of all, defending his apostleship and defending his call of God. They, they heard the gospel first from Paul 
And they need to understand that this wasn't just his opinion, this wasn't uh, just truth that, that he had come up with by himself, but this was the truth of God. That as these other false teachers came, and no doubt slandered Paul, brought him into disrepute, said, well, you know, Paul doesn't have it quite right. You need to listen to us instead. He defends the fact that he was apostle from God, that what he brought was from God, that this was not just merely a message of his own interpretation, but he stood in that privileged position as an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ. Uh, Now then, as we enter into chapter 3, he's not so much looking at the defence of his apostleship and his call from God, but now... He launches into the defence, this great defence of the gospel, and this defence particularly that justification is by faith. And that's where we've been leading to at the end of chapter 2. And you'd have thought probably about this last week, that, that great, these great statements by Paul. But in verse 16 of chapter 2, we know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith. In Jesus Christ. And so, beginning in chapter 3, really until the end of the book, he begins this this systematic destruction of the premises of these, these false teachers, giving a reasoned and scripturally backed defence of the gospel of grace. You know, it's so important for us to make sure that we hold to the gospel. It was attacked, the truth of it, and particularly um, the aspect of, of the importance of faith alone, was attacked right from the beginning. And that attack continues today. The uh, falsehood of adding to the gospel, of adding requirements to what God has given, of adding to faith, it's not just the danger for the Galatians here. Now we don't have the same um, culture or the same uh, type of false teachers perhaps that these people had, these Judaizers, the Jews that were coming in and preaching this. But that doesn't mean that the danger is past. That doesn't mean that there is no longer danger from falsehood coming in and seeking to add to the gospel, changing it. So that it becomes, well, a different gospel, but but not a different gospel that's, what does Paul say, a distortion of the gospel. We should hold dearly to the truth that God has revealed. Because as as Paul goes on to say, it's not just an opinion here. This this goes to the fundamental core of, of the scriptures, to what God has intended right from the beginning. That salvation, that justification is by faith alone. And anything that seeks to take away from that is false and must be shunned. And the danger is that this could happen to Christians. This falsehood can come into Christians here. But this is not just the risk for unbelievers. This is the risk that Christians could take on this false teaching and begin to reproduce it and to preach it. And we see it everywhere, don't we? Churches that become infected with that which is false and it becomes... Um, a means by which falsehood is propagated. And we need to hold firm to the truth. Um, because it's a wonderful truth. You know, 
this is not a negative thing for us to be thinking about today. Uh, it can be if you think about it from one aspect. You know, we're, we're, this is a defence. This is trying to reject that which is false, which can appear to be quite negative, but it should be a positive thing too, because this is a wonderful truth. This is a fantastic truth that every one of us as believers has entered into, that God has made it so that we can be justified before him, redeemed. And there's so many different ways that, that Paul, in just our 14 verses, describes salvation, doesn't he? He talks about it as being, as us being justified. He talks about us being made righteous. He talks about those of us receiving the Spirit. So, the blessings of Abraham have so many different wonderful ways to describe our salvation, and all through faith in Christ. All through what Christ has done on the cross. All by grace. Paul says, if it's anything else, what happens at the end of chapter 2, it nullifies the grace of God. It must be of faith. It cannot be anything else, else it will nullify the grace of God. So then we come to chapter 3, Paul's beginning of his defence of the gospel. Let's quickly give a, a, an outline of the passage and then get into the verses. So uh, a bit of the, uh, how the thought flow of what Paul is going to what Paul gives us, and then we'll get into some more of the detail. So Paul at the beginning reverts back to his initial astonishment that we read in verse 6, that these Galatian believers are turning from the true gospel. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He says, it's like you've, it's like you've been bewitched, put under a spell, the wool has been pulled over your eyes so that you can no longer see the truth. In fact, some some translations, maybe the translation you're reading, the King James or New King James, um, adds that additional phrase at the end there who has bewitched you that you should no longer obey the truth now that's perhaps not there in the original text but the sense is there it gives a good interpretation of what Paul's trying to say here that the truth has been lost because the wool has been pulled over they've been bewitched to turn from the original truth that they've been taught and you sense from the language of Paul that he's astonished. And that astonishment continues throughout the book, really. Uh, even in chapter um, chapter 4, verse 20, I wish that I could be present with you now in change of time, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? I can't understand it. Why would these, why would these people want to be under the law? He, he cannot understand it. And he wants to show them very clearly and through argument after argument through logic and scripture he presents to them the reasons why the gospel is true and this false teaching is indeed false so in our section today he goes on then to give three arguments um, for the truth that salvation is by faith alone and not by the works of the law that that is the subject matter here we've heard it repeated many times so in verse 2 we've got the comparison between receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith and then again um, in verse 5 work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith that's the matter here that's the that is the question that Paul is dealing with how is a person justified how is a person become a Christian is it by the works of the law or is it by the hearing of faith and he gives three arguments. The first the argument he gives from the end of verse 1 down to verse, the end of verse 5 is the argument from their own experience. From their own experience. How did they become Christians? And in doing so, he encapsulates the work of the Son 
and the Spirit and the Father, the whole of the Trinity here is captured in these the experience of these believers. He then moves on to look at the argument from Abraham, verses 6 to 9. Um, so after their experience, really now he brings in the scriptures. And really the argument from the, from the scriptures continues all the way to the end of chapter 4. But in terms of the specific argument that Paul is bringing, um, he's bringing the argument from Abraham. He turns to the scriptures and to Abraham to prove that salvation, being made righteous before God, is and always has been by faith alone. That the gospel is not a change to what's gone before, but it's a continuation of it. It's, it's always has been this way. And the Gentiles being brought into the blessing of Abraham is not something which is unexpected or new through faith. It always has been this way and was always the intention of God to be that way. The argument from, from Abraham. And then finally we have from verses 10 to 14 the, what I've called the argument from the law. And that really continues to the end of chapter 4 really. But um, he addresses now the argument from the other side of the coin. So the previous two from experience and from Abraham are really him justifying why the gospel is by faith alone. Why the gospel is by faith alone, the positive aspect, as it were. Now, from verses 10 to 14, he's showing why it cannot be by the law. So, first of all, why it must be by faith, and now why it cannot be by the law. And so, from scripture, he builds up his argument to show that why the law cannot justify, cannot make anyone righteous, it cannot save. And then finally he shows, well, what the law couldn't do, Christ did. What the law cannot do, the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. And he comes back full circle to the cross. It starts with the cross in, cha- in, in the first verse. Christ, Jesus, publicly portrayed as crucified. And he comes back to the cross at the end of verse 14. Or in, in sorry, in the end of verse 13. When he brings back that man who is hung on a tree. And really that's the point. We're going to see that from verse 1. But if you understand the cross. And if you understand what the Lord did upon the cross. Then this false teaching becomes immediately and obviously untrue. It cannot hold water. Because it is the cross that destroys any hope or any understanding that. Righteousness can be obtained by any means other than faith. Because it's at the cross that the Lord Jesus Christ did everything. And you realise that salvation is not from us at all, but it's all of him. He's done it all, and there's nothing left to do. So that's really the outline, that's where we're going to follow today. We're going to look through these three individual arguments that Paul brings for salvation is by faith alone and not by works of the law so verse 1 foolish Galatians Um, J.B. Phillips translates it like this oh you dear idiots of Galatia (laughs) it's quite some language isn't it senseless lacking understanding some idea of ignorance here he he lays into them it's a chastisement for being taken in by such teaching To the extent they've been so taken in by it, that it's as if they've been bewitched. Now this is the only time this word is used. 
her, this bewitching, to be put under a charm or a spell, to have, to be deceived, to be hypnotised is another way that some people translate it. And of course he's using it as hyperbole, it doesn't, he's not saying that they, a spell has literally been cast upon them, but he's using it as hyperbole to emphasise their foolishness. How could someone believe what these false teachers are saying unless they've been bewitched, unless they've been put under some sort of spell? Because it must be patiently false, and yet here you are, turning to it, following after it, falling for it, in your foolishness. Who has bewitched you? And again, it's worth noting that these are these are true believers here. These are those who have, and of course, they must be true believers. Otherwise, the rest of the argument from verses two onwards doesn't make sense. Um, the danger is that this error was duping these believers, and this is so important because the assembly, that the church, is meant to be that pillar and ground of the truth. And yet, instead, falsehood was going to be preached and practiced instead. And the danger is that if falsehood takes hold, then no more fruit for God is produced. False converts potentially made from a false gospel that's produced. And we have to be aware of that danger. And so he begins this argument, first of all, from their own experience. He says in the end of verse 1, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul says, I'm dumbfounded that you've fallen for such falsehood. Because, first of all, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was, was shown, was publicly portrayed as crucified. The idea is this, that it was like a placard. That's the idea of public people trace, like a billboard before them. That was the centre of Paul's message to them. We get an idea straight away of what, what the gospel preaching was to Paul. Gospel preaching to Paul, and we know this from elsewhere, was preaching Christ Jesus and him crucified. And he was presented to them in such a way that before it was as if that before their eyes he was portrayed there as the crucified one. Now of course, Paul is thinking of more than just the act of crucifixion. No doubt, they knew what crucifixion was. They knew what it meant for a man to be crucified. But he's going beyond that because he would have no doubt taught them the meaning of crucifixion here, the reasons of the crucifixion of Christ, the reason for the cross. That it was there on the cross that Jesus Christ took upon himself their sins. He died in their place. They could go back to the previous things that he just said. How he could say that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the gospel message is this, that Christ has died, he was crucified for us. He died in our place, he took our sins. And in taking our sins, he not only redeemed us, but we then became righteous, justified before God. How could you believe this truth when you understand before you, I told you about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? The point being this, if we truly grasp the cross and what Christ has done there, 
grasp the fact that if it was by any other way than Christ crucified, that it would totally nullify the grace of God. I mean, that's Ephesians 2, isn't it? It's all by God's grace and it's all for God's glory. It's nothing of us. If we understand that, then this false teaching, bringing anything else into the gospel, must be, must be false and must be shunned. So Paul continues, and in a sense he doesn't need to, he could just leave it there, because the, the cross itself destroys this false teaching. But of course he goes on and systematically destroys every pillar and post of these, these false teachers. And he continues with their own experience. He says, let me ask you only this. He says, look, answer me this question. Are you so, uh, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says, how did you become a Christian? Go back to the time you became a Christian. Now it's important to notice the fact that Paul is equating here becoming a Christian, being justified by receiving the Spirit. It's an important point to make because he could have said, uh, let me ask you this, Did you, were you justified before God by works of the law or by hearing of faith? But he doesn't, he brings in the work of the Spirit, he's already brought in the work of Christ, the Son, in verse 1, now he's bringing in the work of the Spirit. He says to them, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now Paul deals with this uh, in Romans, isn't he, Romans chapter 8. The fact that if you're a uh, Christian and you have the Spirit, and if you don't have the Spirit, then you're not a Christian. He says, Romans 8 verse 9, How You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So this is a very important point to note, that those who are saved are those who have the Spirit of God. But why use this description of a Christian here? Why use, why bring in the receiving of the Spirit here? Well, we know from the book of Ephesians that the Spirit of God is that guarantee of our inheritance, of our salvation. It is the down payment, as it were, the promise of our salvation now and for the future to come. It is given to us by God. We know that from verse 5, don't we? Who does he who supplies the Spirit to you? This is God given and is an explicit act of God at the point of becoming a Christian. So if you have the Spirit, then that is the proof and guarantee of your salvation. You don't need anything else. It's an evidence to them that they don't need the law. Because they have the Spirit already. And if they have the Spirit of God, then He is that guarantee. Why do they need anything else? If they've received the Spirit, they've already got that guarantee. They've already got that uh, down payment, that earnest as it's sometimes called that promise and another reason perhaps is it happened at a point in time you can't begin to gradually have the spirit this was a moment in their lives this is not like the law would have it to be that continual and gradual and ongoing obedience and then eventually hopefully by the end of it righteousness no this happened at a point they received the spirit it was a point in time it happened it happened and it's binary you either do or you don't have the spirit you're either saved or you're not so he says think back to that time think back to that time you became a Christian where you received the spirit how did it happen? Now it's a rhetorical question because they know it didn't happen by works of the law 
These were Gentiles. They'd heard, they'd never come under the Lord before. They got heard this message of the gospel. They heard the message of Christ Jesus crucified for them. They, they saw, painted by the words of Paul, the crucified Saviour, the resurrected man, and they trusted him. And they were saved and they received the Spirit, he says. Think back to that time, because it was by faith then. It was by the hearing with faith. And then he says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? Again, that word foolish. He says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected it by faith? Having begun that way, having begun that life as a changed, Spirit-sealed Christian, it is foolishness to expect that it is completed in any other way. Or to put it another way, it is foolish to think that the work of the Spirit of God would in some way be incomplete, because that's what the word perfected here. Are you begun by the Spirit? Are you now completed by the flesh? How could the work of the Spirit in any way be incomplete? It would be foolishness. And perhaps also Paul is defending here the security of their salvation too. The error to think that perhaps, they, yes, they entered this relationship with God, this justification through faith, but now unless they keep the law it could be lost to them no, says Paul, that's foolishness because you have been sealed with the Spirit why would you think that you could go on in the flesh? Now, he's going to address this later, but this also affects the continuation of Christ- as we go on as Christians too, doesn't it? In other words, how do we live as Christians? How do we seek to please God as Christians? How do we seek to go on in our Christian life in a relationship with God? Because it's so easy to drift into this thinking that if we're to live before God, if we're to please Him, then it's by completing the law, by doing the things that He wants. But of course, being a Christian is the reverse of that. It's the acknowledgement that we cannot please Him unless it's by faith. And that we do the things that please God, not because we're trying to earn his pleasure, but because we want to please him for all he has done for us. Not because we're trying to get something which we deserve, because we deserve nothing, but because he has already given us it all. And therefore, from love and a, and a heart of gratitude, we go on and we do those things. As you know, We're created unto good works. That's the end of Ephesians 2. We're created unto good works. Not because the good works save us, but because that is God's purpose for us, that we would walk in the things which are good. So, Paul says, Have you been uh, begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? And he continues this logical barrage by asking them another rhetorical question. Did you suffer so many things in vain, verse 4, if it was in vain? Go back, remember what you suffered. Remember what it meant when you received salvation to begin with. When you, when you stood firm on the gospel, that it was by faith in Christ and Christ alone. When you were attacked and you suffered for what you believe, the experience that you went through, was that experience in vain? If you're now going to capitulate and seek to live under the law, seek to live like a Jew, why did you suffer those things in the first place if you're just going to do the very things that caused you the suffering? Was it in vain? Doesn't make sense. It's pur- their suffering was purposeless if they were now beginning to follow the very teaching which they originally stood against and suffered for denouncing. 
And finally, after bringing in the work of the Son in verse 1 and the Spirit then in verse 2 and 3 and 4, he continues to think about the work of the Father. And this is the ongoing work of God. This is the present tense. He said, look back in the past when you became a Christian. Now look at what's happening now. Does he who supplies, present tense, the Spirit to you, and works miracles, present tense, among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says, look at what God's doing with you right now. Look at the miraculous work that God is doing among your midst. Look at the salvation that he's pouring out. Is that by works of the law or is it by faith? Again, that rhetorical question, the clear answer being, it's by faith. It's not by law. It's not by keeping the law. God's work that is ongoing is by, is by faith and faith alone. God's present work among us now is still given freely by his grace and received through faith. God's blessing is not earned in the same way that their salvation was not earned. And in every way our spiritual journey is, is evidenced by the fact that God acts on the basis of grace by faith, not payment for works. We, we thank him for that. So that's the argument from their experience. Now he looks at the argument from Abraham. So in verse 6 then he kind of massively pivots into this second argument. And brings in Abraham. Now this was masterful because Abraham no doubt would be one of the cornerstones of the arguments for this false teaching. Um, The Jews placed a lot of stock in their link, their genetic link to Abraham. Um, The argument that the Pharisees gave to John the Baptist was, we have Abraham as our father. He says, he cuts them down viciously, doesn't he? say, God could raise children of Abraham from the very stones. That means nothing. But they placed a great deal of stock, the Jews did, in their link to Abraham. They placed a large part of their security, their, their position before God, to their genetic ties, back, all the way back, back to, the, to, the, to their father, to Abraham. To them, that's what was counted. Now Paul is going to tell them then, it's not their link to Abraham's blood that matters, but it's their link to Abraham's faith. And he builds his argument in this section to two parts. First of all, he establishes that Abraham's personal relationship with God, that he was counted as righteous, is based on faith. So he looks at Abraham's situation himself, and then he links that back to them, to the Gentiles. And he shows them how the Gentiles, how they and their faith, it comes back to the promises of God to Abraham. And just how Abraham was justified, so they were justified too. So it begins in verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That takes us back to Genesis 15. One of those great uh, visions and, and, and covenants that God made with Abraham. Uh, when he says, look toward the heaven in Genesis 15 and number the stars... If you are able to number them, he says, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He is, as was described, the man of faith. He is the the father of faith, as it were. Abraham was established as righteous before God, imputed righteousness uh, to Abraham, not because of what he did, but because of his Faith. He trusted God. Now we know that uh, that faith was evidence from his obedience. That's the teaching of James, isn't it? That that faith was evidenced by the obedience of Abraham when he gave up 
for example, when he gave up his son Isaac to be sacrificed. But the point is this, um, that it's faith alone that saves. Now that faith that saves is never alone, but it's faith alone that saves. And it's Abraham who is that, more than a picture, he's the founder, the, 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 the archetype, the, the foundation of that truth. So then Paul says, if Abraham was blessed on the principle of faith, so too are all those who exercise, so then all those who exercise that faith are sons of Abraham. That's verse 7. And this would have flown in the face of those false teachers who took so much stock on their blood link, their genetic link with Abraham. He says, no, they're not the sons of Abraham. It's those who are of faith, the faith that Abraham had they are the sons of Abraham you don't need to follow the law you don't need to be brought under Judaism to come under the blessings that God promised to Abraham they're yours because of your faith anyone those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham and then he has this remarkable uh, verse in verse 8 where he depicts scripture as a, a prophet almost he p- kind of gives this um, a view of scripture foreseeing in verse 8 that God would justify the Gentiles by faith he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham that interesting uh, picture of, of, of scripture kind of personified there uh, by, by Paul now this promise was given in Genesis 12 before the one in Genesis 15 to Abraham that all the nations of the earth through him would be blessed The small point there from, from the fact that Scripture is personified is that what we're dealing with here and what Paul is very clear in making, um, making plain is, is that when we come to the Scriptures, we're dealing with the very Word of God. Um, we're dealing with that which comes from God. God breathed the Word of God, the inspired Word of God today. And seeing then, knowing then, knowing that the Gentiles, us, the non-Jews, would be justified by faith. He preached, it says, the gospel before to Abraham. Is it the same gospel that is being referred to, for example, in chapter 6? Well, yes and no. No in its content, in the sense that Christ hadn't died when Abraham was given these promises, of course. The cross was in the future. The resurrection was in the future. There were things, for example, a whole plethora of prophecy had not been given about about the coming Messiah. But in its essence, in its core, the gospel was, was the same in the sense that it was justification, righteousness by faith. And that's the blessing. Though those are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. The way that Abraham was made righteous is the way, continued the way that God makes us righteous now, through faith. And finally, we come to the argument from, from the law then. After giving us two arguments as to why the gospel must be received by faith, and faith alone, he then shows why the law, the law cannot save. For all who rely on the works of the law, verse 10, are under a curse or under a curse. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 27, which says, Cursed be anyone who does not conform, confirm the words of the law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. A great list, if you go back to it, of all the things that the people agree to 
as curses if they don't fulfil. And it's summarised at the end by this kind of capture all. Cursed be anyone who does not conform to the words of this law. Notice it is the whole law that's being emphasised here. The curse falls upon anyone who breaks any part of the law. This is the teaching of James, isn't it? That if we break one part of the law, we break it all. So what does... What happens to those who are on the law? What does the law do to them? Well, it puts them under a curse. Now, implied here is the idea of the universality of sin. Um, It's not made explicit, as Paul does in other places like Romans, where he makes it very clear. But implied here is this fact that no one can keep the law. That there is none righteous, no one on one. That there is no one who can keep the whole law. We break it in one part, we break it in every part. So what does the law do? Well, under its own uh, conditions, as soon as it is broken, a curse is brought upon that person. So now, being under such a curse, what can the law do about it? Paul is building his argument. He says, look, if you're relying on the works of the law, number one, you're under a curse because you can't keep it. Number two, then, how can that be removed? Now, it's evidence that no one is justified before God by the law. In other words... The law puts you under a curse, but it can't do anything to bring you out of that curse. It can't do anything to take you from being a position of a rebel before God, of being um, guilty before him, facing the consequence of your actions, of breaking the law. It cannot justify you. And again, he brings in the scriptures to back this up. For, quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, the righteous shall live by faith. And what's he saying here? You say, well... How is this the argument against that the law can, can justify? Surely you could say if you live by the law, you're also living by faith. You could say, I still believe God. I have faith in God. I have faith in the scriptures. I have faith in what he says. That is the very reason why I'm seeking to obey the law. Well, the point Paul is saying, and this is the crux of the matter, is that living under the law is, is really mutually exclusive to living by faith. Why? Well, Paul actually gives us the reason why, verse 12. But the law is not of faith. He's saying, if you're going to be righteous, you're living by faith. That's how righteousness comes. It comes by faith. That's from Scripture. But the law is not of faith. In other words, if you want to be righteous, you need to live by faith. How do you live by faith? Well, it's not by the law. Why? Well, it's in verse 12. The one who becomes, who does them, shall live by them. Leviticus chapter 18, quoting now, he's taking from all these passages of scripture to build up this argument to show that the law is that which uh, requires you to do. The one who does them shall live by them. Who does them. Now, it's important to notice that this axiom is true. In other words, if you do do the things of the law, then there will be life. That, that you're, uh, it will justify you. In other words, you will be righteous because you have not broken the law. Um, that's fundamental as one is in Romans chapter 2, that the righteousness of God uh, is right upon that this is, this is true. Um, but the fact of the matter is, as Paul has said, that there is no one who can keep the law. There is no one who can do them and therefore live by them. So the law curses us and can do nothing to bring us out of the consequence of that curse, can do nothing to make us righteous, to justify us before God. 
And so he finishes and says, well, if the law can't remove its own curse, then what can? It brings us full circle back to the centrality of the cross of Christ. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Verse 13, by becoming a curse for us. Christ has redeemed us. That idea has, that word has the idea, redeemed, paying a price, a price to be paid to rescue, to redeem, to take out of a circumstance, to rescue one by paying a price. And it was Christ who did it. He is the one who is acting here. Notice that we are absent from this. Christ redeemed us. It's him who did the rescuing, him who paid the price. The law says, this is what you must do. Christ says, this is what I have done. The question is, how then? And that's what he addresses at the end of the verse, isn't he? By becoming a curse for us. Notice the similarities to 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says he became a sin for us who knew no sin. So simply put, he stood in the place of those who had broken God's law, who were under that curse. He bore that curse instead. The only one upon whom that curse never fell, because he was the one who completely kept the law, who was perfect, who never sinned. And so this one who had no sin, who knew no sin, he was made sin. He was made a curse. He died there on our behalf. On the cross, God reckoned him to be that which he was not, a sinner, on behalf of those, on behalf of us who would trust in him. And Paul quotes the scriptures again, Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, as a support to his argument here. Now, the context is actually very interesting. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, it's that of a disobedient son, just before this. And the punishment that is due to them to be stoned, to be... Uh, to be stoned outside the city by the men of the city Um, and then it goes on and says the scriptures say or God declares that anyone who is killed by stoning must be hung upon a tree not for long not overnight but hung upon a tree and it's the uh, uh, the hanging upon a tree then is not the curse itself it's the evidence the evidence that that man has been come under the judgment of God under the curse of God Now here we have not a disobedient son, the opposite, the most obedient son of them all. One who did not deserve death. And yet took the place of that, of we who did. And seeing him there on the cross, described as a tree, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Shows us, is a declaration, as it was in Deuteronomy 21, that this man was made a curse. He bore our sins. And now we can say with Paul, we have been crucified with Christ. This is how we are redeemed, because through him, by being identified with him, we have been redeemed. So Paul completes his argument in verse 14. We'll come to a close. Um, By summarising why Christ became a curse, why he died on the cross, it says so that in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, neatly bringing together all these threads 
the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles so we might receive the promised spirit that takes us back to verse 2 through faith he says we've got two blessings in Christ first of all the blessing of Abraham that might come to the Gentiles in other words salvation through faith and that we might receive the promised spirit through faith he's going to go on to again bring scripture to bear as to the weakness of the law and the why the law was given but the argument there kind of finishes in the sense that in, in, at the end of verse 14 as to why the law could not and should not ever be added to the gospel because it must be by faith Christ has done it all his death upon the cross has made it possible for us to be saved and to seek to add anything to it really just takes away from it and so there's two applications I want to leave us with one um, it's good for us to just step back sometimes and just appreciate just exactly how much Christ has done to save us to take a step back and to think what it must have meant for him to be made a curse for us um, and it's right that we do so and we remember him every week and that is a that is such I think that's such an important thing to do to to just have that regular reminder and meditation on just exactly what it cost him because as Paul kind of said in the end of chapter 2 um, if it was any other way then Christ died for no purpose it was must have been by the cross and what a price he paid by becoming a curse for us the second thing to leave you with is this that to remind ourselves that on our continued walk with Christ as we go on as Christians that we go on in the same way in which we started we go on in faith we continue in faith that God's blessing continues to come to us in faith not because we're we work and therefore we are owed anything by God. We don't do things to earn God's approval or blessing, but we live our life as a Christian for God out of a love and appreciation of what he's done for us. Seeking, as Ephesians said, to walk worthy of the calling where we have been called. So we need to watch for the danger and delight in what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we give you thanks for all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We owe everything to him. Um, our God, if it were not for him, we would be lost, we would be facing this curse, and we would be without hope. Uh, we would be dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But we give thanks for your grace. It's the grace of God that's uh, brought us to where we are today through what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us on Calvary. We thank you that it's all of him, that it doesn't rely on us at all that it's only by grace through faith we pray that you'd help us to to remind our hearts of this each day to strengthen our faith to appreciate more and more what our, what our Lord has done and to be on the watch for anything that is false that might seek to add to this wonderful gospel that we have may we shun it, may we reject it and may we hold fast the truth that Christ has died and faith in him alone is what can save. We pray for your people here. We give thanks for the work that they do in seeking to reach other people with the great message of the gospel. We pray that you would bless them mightily for your glory. They would see those who did not know Christ, who were lost, come to know him and be saved. 
and grow as Christians here in the fellowship. We pray that you would bless them therefore in their work for you. And may they be um, a, a testament and a glory to you here, here in this place. Thank you then, our God, and pray your blessing now as you part. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.